0: Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me Chris Stamble Major. In this episode we're continuing with the book Sailing Alone Around the World by Captain Joshua Slocum. And we're now starting chapter 11. The spray being secured, the islanders returned to the coffee and donuts and I was more than flattered when they did not slight my buns as the professor had done in the Strait of Magellan. Between buns and doughnuts, there was little difference except in name. Both had been fried in tallow, which was the strong point in both, for there was nothing on the island fatter than a goat, and a goat is but a lean beast to make the best of it. So with a view to business, I hooked my steel yards to the boom at once, ready to weigh out tallow, there being no customs officer to say, why do you do so? and before the sun went down, the islanders had learned the art of making buns and doughnuts. I did not charge a high price for what I sold, but the ancient and curious coins I got in payment, some of them from the wreck of a galleon sunk in the bay, no one knows when, I sold afterward to antiquarians for more than face value. In this way, I made a reasonable profit. I brought away money of all denominations from the island, and nearly all there was, so far as I could find out. Juan Fernandez, as a place of call, is a lovely spot. The hills are well wooded, the valleys fertile, and pouring down through many ravines are streams of pure water. There are no serpents on the island and no wild beasts other than pigs and goats, of which I saw a number, with possibly a dog or two. The people lived without the use of rum or beer or of any sort, There was not a police officer or a lawyer among them. The domestic economy of the island was simplicity itself. The fashions of Paris did not affect the inhabitants, each dressed according to his own taste. Although there was no doctor, the people were all healthy and the children were all beautiful. There were about 45 souls on the island all told. The adults were mostly from the mainland of South America. One lady there from Chile who made a flying jib for the spray, taking her pay in tallow, would be called a bell at Newport. Blessed island of Juan Fernandez, why Alex Selkirk ever left was more than I could make out. A large ship, which had arrived some time before on fire, had been stranded at the head of the bay, and as the sea smashed her to pieces on the rocks after the fire was drowned, the islanders picked up the timbers and utilised them in the construction of houses, which naturally presented a ship like appearance. The house of the King of Juan Fernandez, Manuel Carroza by name, besides resembling the Ark, wore a polished brass knocker on its only door, which was painted green. In front of this gorgeous entrance was a flagmast all atonto, and near it a smart whaleboat painted red and blue, the delight of the king's old age. I, of course, made a pilgrimage to the old lookout place at the top of the mountain, where Selkirk spent many days peering into the distance for the ship which came at last. From a tablet fixed into the face of the rock, I copied these words, inscribed in Arabic capitals. In memory of Alexander Selkirk, Mariner, a native of Largo in the country of Fife, Scotland, who lived on this island in complete solitude for four years And four months, he was landed for the Cinque Ports galley, ninety-six tons, eighteen guns, A.D. seventeen o four, and was taken off in the Duke, privateer, twelfth February seventeen o nine. He died, lieutenant of H.M.S. Weymouth, A.D. seventeen twenty-three, aged forty-seven. This tablet is erected near Selkirk's Lockout by Commander Powell and the officers at H.M.S. Topaz. AD 1868. The cave in which Selkirk dwelt while on the island is at the head of the bay now called Robinson Crusoe Bay. It is around a bold headland west of the present anchorage and landing. Ships have anchored there, but it affords a very indifferent berth. Both of these anchorages are exposed to north winds, which, however, do not reach home with much violence. The holding ground being good in the first named bay to the eastward, The anchorage there may be considered safe, although the undertow at times makes it wild riding. I visited Robinson Crusoe Bay in a boat, and with some difficulty landed through the surf near the cave which I entered. I found it dry and inhabitable. It is located in a beautiful nook, sheltered by high mountains from all the severe storms that sweep over the island, which are not many, for it lies near the limits of the trade wind regions being in latitude of 35.5 south. The island is about 14 miles in length, east and west, and 8 miles in width. Its height is over 3,000 feet. Its distance from Chile, to which country it belongs, is about 340 miles. Juan Fernandez was once a convict station. A number of caves in which the prisoners were kept, damp, unwholesome dens, are no longer in use, and no more prisoners are sent to the island. The pleasantest day I spent on the island, if not the pleasantest on my whole voyage, which was my last day on shore, but by no means because it was the last. When the children of the little community, one and all, went out with me to gather wild fruits for the voyage, we found quinces, peaches and figs, and the children gathered a basket of each. It takes very little to please children, and these little ones, never hearing a word in their lives except Spanish, made the hills ring with mirth at the sound of words in English. They asked me the names of all manner of things on the island. We came to the wild fig tree, loaded with fruit, of which I gave them the English name, Figgies, Figgies. They cried while they picked till their baskets were full. But when I told them that the cabra, which they pointed out, was only a goat, they screamed with laughter and rolled on the grass in wild delight to think that a man who came to their island, would call a cabra, a goat. The first child, born on Juan Fernandez, I was told, had become a beautiful woman and was now a mother. Manuel Carosa and the good soul who followed him here from Brazil had laid away their only child, a girl, at the age of seven, in the little churchyard on the point. In the same half-acre were other mounds among the rough lava rocks, some marking the burial place of native-born children, some the resting places of seamen from passing ships, landed here to end days of sickness and get into a sailor's heaven. The greatest drawback I saw in the island was the want of a school. A class there would necessarily be small, but to some kind soul who loved teaching and quietude, life on Juan Fernandez would, for a limited time, be one of delight. On the morning of May 5th 1896 I sailed from Juan Fernandez having feasted on many things but on nothing sweeter than the adventure itself of a visit to the home and to the very cave of Robinson Crusoe. From the island the spray bore away to the north passing the island of Saint Felix before she gained the trade winds which seemed slow in reaching their limits. If the trades were tardy however when they did come They came with a bang and made up for lost time. And the spray under reefs, sometimes one, sometimes two, flew before a gale for a great many days with a bone in her mouth toward the Marqueses in the west, which she made on the 43rd day out and still kept on sailing. My time was all taken up those days, not by standing at the helm. No man, I think, could stand or sit and steer a vessel round the world. I did better than that, for I sat and read my books mended my clothes or cooked my meals and ate them in peace. I had already found that it was not good to be alone and so I made companionship with what there was around me, sometimes with the universe and sometimes with my own insignificant self. But my books were always my friend. Let fail all else, nothing could be easier or more restful than my voyage in the trade winds. I sailed with a free wind day after day marking the position of my ship on the chart with considerable precision but that was done by intuition i think more than by slavish calculations for one whole month my vessel held her course true i had not the while so much as a light in the binnacle the southern cross i saw every night a beam the sun every morning came up astern every evening it went down ahead i wished for no other compass to guide me "'for these were true. "'If I doubted my reckoning after a long time at sea, "'I verified it by reading the clock aloft "'made by the great architect, and it was right. "'There was no denying that the comical side "'of the strange life appeared. "'I woke sometimes to find the sun "'already shining into my cabin. "'I had water rushing by with only a thin plank "'between me in the depths, and I said, "'How is this?' "'But it was all right. "'It was my ship on her course.' Sailing as no other ship had ever sailed before in the world. The rushing water along her side told me that she was sailing at full speed. I knew that no human hand was at the helm. I knew that all was well within the hands forward and that there was no mutiny on board. The phenomena of ocean meteorology were interesting studies even here in the trade winds. I observed that about every seven days, the wind freshened and drew several points farther than usual from the direction of the pole. That is, it went round from east-southwest to south-southeast, while at the same time, a heavy swell rolled up from the southwest. All this indicated that gales were going on in the anti-trades. The wind then hauled day after day as it moderated, till it stood again at the normal point east-southeast. This is more or less the constant state of the winter trades in latitude 12 south, where I ran down the longitude for weeks. The sun, we all know, is the creator of the trade winds and of the wind system over all the earth. But ocean meteorology is, I think, the most fascinating of all. From Juan Fernandez to the Marqueses, I experienced six changes of these great palpitations of sea winds and of the sea itself, the effect of far-off gales. To know the laws that govern the winds and to know that you know them will give you an easy mind on your voyage around the world. Otherwise, you may tremble at the appearance of every cloud. What is true of this in the trade winds is much more so in the variables where changes run more to the extremes. To cross the Pacific Ocean, even under the most favorable circumstances, brings you for many days close to nature and you realize the vastness of the sea. Slowly but surely, the mark of my little ship's course on the track chart reached out on the ocean and across it, while at her utmost speed she marked with her keel still slowly the sea that carried her. On the 43rd day from land, a long time to be at sea alone, the sky being beautiful clear and the moon being in distance with the sun, I threw up my sextant for sight. I found from the result of three observations after long wrestling with lunar tables, that a longitude, by observation, agreed within five miles of that by dead reckoning. This was wonderful. Both, however, might be in error, but somehow I felt confident that both were nearly true, and that in a few hours more I should see land. And so it happened, for then I made the island of Nukahiva, the southernmost of the Marchese group, clear-cut and lofty. The verified longitude when abreast was somewhere between the two reckonings, and this was extraordinary. All navigators will tell you that from one day to another, a ship may lose or gain more than five miles in her sailing account. And again, in the matter of lunars, even expert lunarians are considered as doing clever work when they average within eight miles of the truth. I hope I am making it clear that I do not lay claim to cleverness or to slavish calculations in my reckonings. I think I have already stated that I kept my longitude at least mostly by intuition. A rotator log always towed astern, but so much has to be allowed for currents and for drift, which the log never shows, that it is only an approximation after all to be corrected by one's own judgment from data of a thousand voyages. And even then the master of the ship, if he be wise, cries out for the lead and the lookout. Unique was my experience in nautical astronomy from the deck of the spray, so much so that I feel justified in briefly telling it here. The first set of sights, just spoken of, put her many hundred miles west of my reckoning by account. I knew this could not be correct. In about an hour's time, I took another set of observations with the utmost care. The mean result of these was about the same as that of the first set. I asked myself, why? With my boasted self-dependence, I had not done at least better than this. Then I went in search of a discrepancy in the tables, and I found it. In the tables, I found that the column of figures from which I had got an important logarithm was in error. It was a matter I could prove beyond a doubt, and it made the difference as already stated. The tables, being corrected, I sailed on with self-reliance unshaken and with my tin clock fast asleep. The result of these observations naturally tickled my vanity for I knew that it was something to stand by on a great ship's deck and with two assistants take lunar observations approximately near the truth. As one of the poorest of American sailors I was proud of the little achievement alone on the sloop even by chance though it may have been. I was en rapport now with my surroundings and was carried by a vast stream where I felt the buoyancy of his hand who made all the worlds. I realize the mathematical truth of their motions, so well known that astronomers compile tables of their positions through the years and the days and the minutes of a day and such precisions that one coming along over the sea even five years later may, by their aid, find the standard time of any given meridian on the earth. To find local time is a simple matter. The difference between local and standard time is longitude expressed in time, four minutes, we all know, representing one degree. This, briefly, is a principle on which longitude is found, independent of chronometers. The work of the Lunarian, though seldom practiced in these days of chronometers, is beautifully edifying, and there is nothing in the realm of navigation that lifts one's heart up more in adoration. Chapter 12 To be alone, 43 days, would seem a long time, but in reality, even here, winged moments flew lightly by, and instead of my hauling in for Nukahiva, which I could have made as well as not, I kept on for Samoa, where I wished to make my next landing. This occupied 29 days more, making 72 days in all. I was not distressed in any way during that time. There was no end of companionship, the very coral reefs kept me company or gave me no time to feel lonely, which is the same thing, and there were many of them now in my course to Samoa. First among the incidents of the voyage from Juan Fernandez to Samoa, which were not many, was a narrow escape from collision with a great whale that was absent-mindedly ploughing the ocean at night while I was below The noise from his startled snort and the commotion he made in the sea as he turned to clear my vessel brought me on deck in time to catch a wetting from the water he threw up with his flukes. The monster was apparently frightened. He headed quickly for the east. I kept on going west. Soon another whale passed, evidently a companion following in its wake. I saw no more on this part of the voyage, nor did I wish to. Hungry sharks came about the vessel often when she neared islands or coral reefs. I own to a satisfaction in shooting them, as one would a tiger. Sharks, after all, are the tigers of the sea. Nothing is more dreadful to the mind of a sailor, I think, than a possible encounter with a hungry shark. A number of birds were always about. Occasionally, one poised on the mast to look the spray over, wondering perhaps at her odd wings For now she wore her Fugo mainsail, which, like Joseph's coat, was made of many pieces. Ships are less common on the southern seas than formerly. I saw not one in the many days crossing the Pacific. My diet on these long passages usually consisted of potatoes and salt cod and biscuits, which I made two or three times a week. I had always plenty of coffee, tea, sugar, and flour. I carried usually a good supply of potatoes. But before reaching samoa i had a mishap which left me destitute of this highly prized sailor's luxury through meeting at juan fernandez the yankee portuguese named manuel Carosa, who nearly traded me out of my boots i ran out of potatoes in the mid-ocean and was wretched thereafter i prided myself on being something of a trader but this portuguese from the azores by way of new bedford who gave me new potatoes for the older ones i had got from the columbia a bushel or more of their best, left me no ground for boasting. He wanted mine, he said, for changing the seed. When I got to sea, I found that his tubers were rank and unedible and full of fine yellow streaks of repulsive appearance. I tied the sack up and returned to the few left of my old stock, thinking that maybe when I got right hungry, the island potatoes would improve in flavour. Three weeks later, I opened the bag again and out flew millions of winged insects. Manuel's potatoes had all turned to moths. I tied them up quickly and threw all into the sea. Manuel had a large crop of potatoes on hand, and as a hint to whalemen who are always eager to buy vegetables, he wished me to report whales off the island of Juan Fernandez, which I have already done, and big ones at that, but they were a long way off. Taking things, by and large, as sailors say, I got on fairly well in the matter of provisions, even on the long voyage across the Pacific. I found always some small stores to help the fare of luxuries. What I lacked of fresh meat was made up in fresh fish, at least while in the trade winds where flying fish crossed on the wing at night would hit the sails and fall on deck, sometimes two or three of them, sometimes a dozen. Every morning, except when the moon was large, I got a bountiful supply by merely picking them up from the lee scuppers, all tinned meats, went begging. On the 16th day of July after considerable care and some skill and hard work the spray cast anchor at Apia in the kingdom of Samoa about noon. My vessel being moored I spread an awning and instead of going at once on shore I sat under it till late in the evening listening with delight to the musical voices of the Samoan men and women. A canoe coming down the harbour with three young women in it Rested her paddles abreast sloop. One of the fair crew, hailing with the naive salutation, Talofa lay, love to you, chief, asked, Sehun come Meleke. Love to you, I answered, and said, Yes. You man come lone? Again I answered, Yes. I don't believe that. You had other mans, and you eat them. At this sally, the others laughed. What for you come long way? They asked. To hear you ladies sing, I replied. Oh, to lo for lay, they all cried and sang on. Their voices filled the air with music that rolled across to the grove of tall palms on the other side of the harbour and back. Soon after this, six young men came down in the United States Consul General's boat, singing in parts and beating time with their oars. In my interview with them, I came off better than with the damsels in the canoe. They bore an invitation from General Churchill for me to come and dine at the consulate. There was a lady's hand in things about the consulate at Samoa. Mrs. Churchill picked the crew for the general's boat and saw to it that they wore a smart uniform and that they could sing the Samoan boat song, which in the first week, Mrs. Churchill herself could sing like a native girl. Next morning, bright and early, Mrs. Robert Louis Stevenson came to the spray and invited me to Viallima the following day. I was, of course, thrilled when I found myself, after so many days of adventure, face to face with this bright woman, so lately the companion of the author who had delighted me on the voyage. The kindly eyes that looked me through and through sparkled when we compared notes of adventure. I marveled at some of her experiences and escapes. She told me that, along with her husband, she had voyaged in all manner of rickety craft along the islands of the Pacific, reflectively adding, our tastes were similar. Following the subject of voyages, she gave me the four beautiful volumes of sailing directories for the Mediterranean, writing on the flyleaf of the first, to Captain Slocum. These volumes have been read and reread many times by my husband, and I am very sure that he would be pleased that they should be passed on to the sort of seafaring man that he liked above all others. Fanny Vida G. Stevenson. Mrs. Stevenson also gave me a great directory of the Indian Ocean. It was not without a feeling of reverential awe that I received the books so nearly direct from the hand of Tusitala, who sleeps in the forest. Ayo the spray will cherish your gift. The novelist's Stepson, Mr. Lloyd Osborne, walked through the Violima station with me and bade me write my letters at the old desk. I thought it would be presumptuous to do that. It was sufficient for me to enter the hall on the floor of which the writer of tales according to the Samoan custom was wont to sit. Coming through the main street of Apia one day with my hosts all bound for the spray, Mrs. Stevenson on horseback, I walking by her side and Mr. and Mrs. Osborne close in our wake on bicycles, at a sudden turn on the road we found ourselves mixed with a remarkable native procession with a somewhat primitive band of music in front of us while behind was a festival or a funeral, we could not tell which. Several of the stoutest men carried bales and bundles on poles, some were evidently bales of tapper cloth. The burden of one set of poles, heavier than the rest, however, was not so easily made out. My curiosity was whetted to know whether it was a roast pig or something of a gruesome nature, and I inquired about it. I don't know, said Mrs. Stevenson, whether this is a wedding or a funeral. Whatever it is, though, Captain, our place seems to be at the head of it. The spray being in the stream, we boarded her from the beach abreast in the little raised Gloucester dory, which had been painted a smart green. Our combined weight loaded it gunnelled to the water, and I was obliged to steer with great care to avoid swamping. The adventure pleased Mrs. Stevenson greatly, and as we paddled along, she sang, They went to the sea in a pea-green boat. I could understand her saying of her husband and herself. Our tastes were similar. As I sailed farther from the centre of civilization, I heard less and less of what would and would not pay. Mrs. Stevenson, in speaking of my voyage, did not once ask me what I would make out of it. When I came to a Samoan village, the chief did not ask the price of gin or say, how much will you pay for roast pig? But, dollar, dollar, said he, white man, no, only dollar. Never mind dollar, the tapo has prepared ava, let us drink and rejoice. The tapo is the virgin hostess of the village. In this instance, it was Taloa, daughter of the chief. Our tarot is good. Let us eat. On the tree there is fruit. Let the day go by. Why should we mourn over it? There are millions of days coming. The breadfruit is yellow in the sun, and from the cloth tree is Taloa's gown. Our house, which is good, cost but the labour of building it, and there is no lock on the door. While the days go thus in these southern islands, we at the north are struggling for the bare necessities of life. For food, the islanders have only to put out their hand and take what nature has provided for them. If they plant a banana tree, their only care afterward is to see that too many trees do not grow. They have great reason to love their country and to fear the white man's yoke, for once harnessed to the plough, their life would no longer be a poem. The chief of the village of Kaini, who was a tall and dignified Tonga man, could be approached only through an interpreter and talking man. It was perfectly natural for him to inquire the object of my visit, and I was sincere when I told him that my reason for casting anchor in Samoa was to see their fine men and fine women too. After a considerable pause, the chief said, The captain has come a long way to see so little, but, he added, the tapo must sit nearer the captain. Yak, said Taloa, who had so nearly learned to say yes in English, and suiting the action to the word, she hitched a peg nearer, all hands sitting in a circle upon mats. I was no less taken with the chief's eloquence than delighted with the simplicity of all he said. About him there was nothing pompous. He might have been taken for a great scholar or statesman, the least assuming of the men I met on the voyage. As for Taloa, a sort of queen of the May, and the other Tapo girls, well, It is wise to learn as soon as possible the manners and customs of these hospitable people, and meanwhile not to mistake for over-familiarity that which is intended as honour to a guest. I was fortunate in my travels in the islands and saw nothing to shake one's faith in native virtue. To the unconventional mind, the punctilious etiquette of Samoa is perhaps a little painful. For instance, I found that in partaking of Ava, the social bowl, I was supposed to toss a little of the beverage over my shoulder, or pretend to do so, and say, let the gods drink, and then drink it all myself, and the dish, invariably a coconut shell, being empty, I might not pass it politely as we would do, but politely throw it twirling across the mats at the tapo. My most grievous mistake while at the islands was made on a nag, which inspired by a bit of good road must needs break into a smart trot through a village. I was instantly hailed by the chief's deputy, who, in an angry voice, brought me to a halt. Perceiving that I was in trouble, I made signs for pardon, the safest thing to do, though I did not know what offence I had committed. My interpreter coming up, however, put me right, but not until a long palaver had ensued. The deputy's hail, liberally translated, was Ahoy there on the frantic steed! "'Know you not that it is against the law "'to ride thus through the village of our fathers?' "'I made what apologies I could "'and offered to dismount, "'and, like my servant, led my nag by the bridle. "'Thus the interpreter told me "'would also be a grievous wrong, "'and so I again begged for pardon. "'I was summoned to appear before a chief, "'but my interpreter, being a wit as well as a bit of a rogue, "'explained that I was myself something of a chief "'and should not be detained,' being on a most important mission. In my own behalf, I could only say that I was a stranger, but pleading all this, I knew I still deserved to be roasted, at which the chief showed a fine row of teeth and seemed pleased, but allowed me to pass on. The chief of the Tongas and his family at Kaini, returning my visit, brought presents of tapa cloth and fruits. Taloa, the princess, brought a bottle of coconut oil for my hair, which another man might have regarded as coming late. It was impossible to entertain on the spray after the royal manner in which I had been received by the chief. His fare had included all that the land could afford, fruits, fowl, fishes, and flesh, a hog having been roasted whole. I set before them boiled salt pork and salt beef, with which I was well supplied, and in the evening took them all to a new amusement in the town, A rocking horse merry-go-round, which they had called a kiki, meaning theatre, and in a spirit of justice, they pulled off the horse's tails. For the proprietors of the show, two hard-fisted countrymen of mine, I grieve to say, unceremoniously hustled them off for a new set almost at the first spin. I was not a little proud of my Tonga friends. The chief, finest of them all, carried a portentous club. As for the theatre. Through the greed of the proprietors it was becoming unpopular and the representatives of the three great powers in want of laws which they could enforce adopted a vigorous foreign policy, taxing it 25% on the gate money. This was considered a great stroke of legislative reform. It was the fashion of the native visitors to the spray to come over the bows where they could reach the headgear and climb aboard with ease and on going ashore to jump off the stern and swim away. Nothing could have been more delightfully simple. The modest natives wore lava lava bathing dresses, a native cloth from the bark of the mulberry tree, and they did no harm to the spray. In summerland Samoa, their coming and going was only a merry everyday scene. One day, the head teachers of Papauta College, Miss Schlutz and Miss Moore, came on board with their 97 young women students, They were all dressed in white and each wore a red rose and, of course, came in boats or canoes in the cold climate style. A merrier bevy of girls it would be difficult to find. As soon as they got on deck, by request of one of the teachers, they sang The Watch of the Rhine, which I had never heard before, and now, said they all, let up anchor and away. But I had no inclination to sail from Samoa so soon. On leaving the spray, these accomplished young women each seized a palm branch or paddle or whatever else would serve the purpose and literally paddled her own canoe. Each could have swum as readily and would have done so, I dare say, had it not been for the holiday muslin. It was not uncommon at Apia to see a young woman swimming alongside a small canoe with a passenger for the spray. Mr Trude, an old Eton boy, came in this manner to see me and he explained was ever king ferried in such state. Then, suiting his action to the sentiment, he gave the damsel pieces of silver till the natives watching on shore yelled with envy. My own canoe, a small dugout, one day when it had rolled over with me, was seized by a party of fair bathers and before I could get my breath, almost, was towed around and around the spray while I sat in the bottom of it wondering what they would do next. But in this case, there were six of them, three on a side, and I could not help myself. One of the sprites, I remember, was a young English lady who made more sport of it than any of the others. That's the end of chapter 12. If you want to listen to my commentary on this section of the book, that's going to be next. And if you'd like to listen to the next part of the story, that's in the next episode. Okay, well, let's have a look now at chapters 11 and 12. And I think within these chapters, we start to see that Slocum is really starting to get into his groove, both in terms of the voyage and his time on board the spray, but also in his writing. What we have here is two chapters which really nothing very much happens. And yet for me, they're some of the most magical bits of writing in the book. The fact is that between Juan Fernandez and, and Samoa, where he goes ashore and visits Robert Louis Stevenson's widow, there's not very much that really happens. All too often with sailing text, the emphasis seems to be on the fact that you have to have yet another storm or yet another disaster on board the boat, or a mutiny or it's going aground or whatever. But the actual story of being at sea, of, of voyaging, is very little of that really happens. I always say to people that 10% of the time you'd be calmed, 10% of the time you're in bad weather, 40% of the time you're in exceptional weather, and 40% of the time you're in crappy weather. And within that, you can pretty much chart most professional careers, unless of course you're involved in something where you must by needs deliberately drive into one or other of those situations. Unfortunately, offshore racing is one where you are literally deliberately always trying to get into that lower 40, the 40% of the weather, that's kind of crappy because you kind of stay in storms and go fast. But in this part of the book, Slocum breaks out into, into open ground after everything that we have heard about in the Straits of Magellan and his uh, interactions with Black Pedro and the Fujin warriors that are there. This is one section of the book where things are going really, really nicely. And it's actually Slocum's opportunity to go ashore in Juan Fernandez and see the site and the cave and the uh, get the lay of the land where one of his obvious heroes, I think, Alexander Selkirk was ashore. Now, for those who don't know exactly who Alexander Selkirk was, if you've ever heard of the book Robinson Crusoe, then in fact, you do know who Alexander Selkirk was, because it's his story, which eventually became the underpinnings of that famous novel. So what's his story? Let's let's jump into that a little bit, because whilst we all know the story, Um, What was the actual reality and what was it that um, Slocum was so interested to go and see? Alexander Selkirk was the uh, sailing master on board a vessel called the Cinque Ports. This had been... um, a little expedition that had been put together by a guy called Captain Dampier, which maybe we can come back to him later on. Um, he'd got two boats, the Cinque ports, the uh, the five ports and the St. George's. And um, they were off basically trying to make money. They were privateers. And at that time there was license for people to um, act in what we would now say was a kind of piratical manner. Um, but they could do it other license from the king if they took Spanish gold and spanish ships so there was supposedly a a great fortune to be made if you could just find the right spanish ship so they set off down the coast of um, south america and and never really kind of came across anybody to make money out of they then beat and rounded the way around uh, cape horn similar to what um, slocum did in the last couple of chapters once they made their way into the pacific there was uh, a battle fought between them and the French vessel St Joseph only to have it to escape and then warn all of the Spanish vessels uh, or begin the warning of the Spanish vessels in that region that this privateer vessel was there. So obviously everybody disappeared. So they made their way up the coast of South America and got as far as the uh, Panamanian gold mining town of uh, Santa Maria but their landing party was ambushed when they got there it seems that every turn they took uh they were they were horribly kind of pushed back so they then headed south uh and ended up um, coming into juan fernandez where they were going to get provisions and uh refit the boats and that's where things get uh, interesting Mid-expedition like this they were restocking water and supplies but Selkirk had given uh, a lot of warnings that he was very worried about the seaworthiness of the vessels and particularly that they were dangerously leaky as they were worm-eaten. He, in a (laughs) somewhat rash moment, said that he would rather stay on Juan Fernandez, which at that time was completely Isolated and uh, completely deserted, it was only him. Um, he said he'd rather stay there than go on the vessel, and uh, well, they they took him up on it. So they, st- the captain of the ship, which was a uh, captain or Str- sorry, Stradling or sorry, Straddling, an unfortunate name for a captain, Captain Straddling, Straddling what? Straddling took him up on the offer, and he lands Selkirk on the island with just a musket, a hatchet, a knife, a cooking pot. A Bible, bedding, and some clothes, and that is then where Selkirk found himself for the next four years and four months. Um, it says here on the Wikipedia page that Selkirk immediately regretted his rashness, <laughs> but straddling refused to let him back on board. Uh, well, I can kind of imagine that. I can imagine like having having big words with the captain. I Maybe mean, he's a sailing master, so he's kind of part of the afterguard. So his his Opinion would hold some kind of water, but uh, saying that you'd rather stay on a deserted island when there's no chance of anybody else coming back for you. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, you know what? He was right. That's the most important thing of it. The, the vessel, the Cinque ports, did indeed uh, founder off the coast later on of what is now called Colombia. And uh, the captain and some of the crew did survive, um, but they were forced to surrender to the Spanish. Uh, the survivors were taken to Lima. Uh, where they endured a harsh imprisonment, it says here. So, it was a good decision for Selkirk, but there's one big caveat: you better stay alive. <laughs> so we've seen the film, of course, Castaway, and if I remember in that, is it not literally four years later? Is that not the bit that he's he's doing what he's doing and he finds all the packages. This is Tom Hanks' character. He finds all the packages on the shore and um, he kind of gets fire going, all this kind of stuff. And then it fades to black and fades back up and it says four years later. And obviously I think that's a big nod to um, Alexander Selkirk. So... Selkirk's story um, continues. He he was then rescued uh, off uh, Juan Fernandez. Obviously, it would have been a pretty impossible um, uh, story to know otherwise. But um, he was rescued four years and four months later by the Duke, and he was actually res- He was actually rescued by a vessel which was being piloted by William Dampier, and William Dampier was the guy who had organised the original. Um, expedition with the Saint George's and the Cinque ports. He was, he was kind of like the guy in charge of the expedition that um, Selkirk had had uh, walked away from or stepped off from. So I'm not sure exactly how. It, He was received, but I'm guessing that um, four years later on, uh, he was pretty damn happy, whoever it was that came calling for him. Um, I imagine that um, Dampier used Juan Fernandez as a regular place to stop and get water and all the rest of it. So um, that is the story of uh, Alexander Selkirk. And that is why that story of uh, self um reliance and that independent streak which we've seen so much in all that we've read about um joshua slocum i think that is a story it would have been a big deal still at the time um you know when uh selkirk got off the island it was 1709 so you're still talking about a hundred and what 80 years in the past something like that um but the thing is, you know, it's kind of like I would go to Juan Fernandez to look in the cave because Alexander Selkirk was there and because Slocum was there. I'd like to go there and see what those people did because um, he, Selkirk is a, a hero to Slocum as Slocum is a hero to me. So I can absolutely understand him wanting to go and see that. But uh, he, he does more, of course, on uh, Juan Fernandez than just uh, dig around and, and look into the story of Selkirk. He um, he introduces the uh, the island's inhabitants to tallow. So tallow is rendered beef and mutton fat. Technically, it doesn't have to be just those two. It can also incorporate lard from pigs. It can also, these days, incorporate things from plants, but um, it is technically defined as a you know triglyceride fatty substance which is solid at room temperature and um it has a lot of different uses obviously tallow is used as a lubricant in all sorts of situations on old wooden ships but you can also cook in tallow you know i think uh, am i right in saying that that's dripping or is dripping only lard and uh, i don't know my father when he was young uh used to love bread and dripping sandwiches which uh whatever kind of fat it is you're putting on. I think we all know where it's at. If there's uh, uh, bacon's been cooking in the pan, what you've got there is lard. Or if you've got beef cooking in the pan, what you've got there is tallow. And when they cool down in the pan, that whitish substance that is formed um, is what Slocum has rescued off the beach there in the Magellan Strait and correctly realized it could be a worthwhile Enterprise for him further along on his voyage, so he ends up trading it with the uh, people of Juan Fernandez, who suddenly learn the joys of donuts and uh, and buns and all the rest of this stuff. But um, the only animals they've got there are goats, which obviously not going to get much out of a goat in terms of fat. So even once you cooked it, there'd only be a small amount of it. Suddenly having big pots of it in which to cook other things, I'm sure would bring a new flavor to the to the food and uh, a yummy treat in the form of in the form of donuts so um, he gets paid but um, he gets point paid and I thought it's kind of interesting it's such a wide variety of coins that he gets uh, paid in that in the end he sells them to antiquarians further along on his voyage getting a better price because he's getting more than the uh, the face value on them but some of the coins that he's got have literally come from like a sunken galleon that's in, in some bay around the corner um, and he says at the end of it that he he believes he has literally got all of the coins off the island. So uh, a bit of a view there into what it was like to do island trading in the late 1800s. What's interesting, I find in this is that I say there's not very much in terms of action happens. But because of that, Slocum starts to drill down into details. I remember once driving across the Nullarbor in Australia. It's this massive open desert in the, the southern um Middle section of of uh, of uh, of Australia, and there's nothing there. There's uh, it's called Nullarbor because it's Nulla abora. It's from the Latin "no trees." It's just low, scrubby bush and lots of red sand, as you can imagine, and some dingoes and some kangaroos, and and there's nothing. And for a day driving, you're like, "Well, oh, man, there's nothing here." And so what you start to do is you start to look at details, insects, blowholes, the people that you meet, little caves, little fossils, and As I look back on that in later years, that section driving across the Nullarbor was one of incredible diversity and and, uh, some of my favorite parts of the trip. I think it's the same here for, for Slocum because he has to tell us a little bit more about what happens with the people that he meets and a little bit more about his navigation and a little bit more about his life on board. And we suddenly get... Uh, Something that we've come to love, I think, from from this story, Um, that is Slocum's late 18th century views on the world. And uh, he notes that in Juan Fernandez, the people have no issues with alcoholism. They have no police force. They have no lawyers. uh, Everyone seems to be pretty happy. They have no issues whatsoever to be worried about. And he is extraordinarily... Uh, impressed with the the culture there and I think perhaps at this point in the story he starts to become aware of the fact that this may not last forever if the white man turns up and turns it into something else and unfortunately of course that's what happened during the early 1900s if it hadn't happened in other parts of the world um, the the reaches particularly of British um, imperialism the fingers of that reached out, bringing with it Christianity and just weighed lace to these communities who are quite happy before we get there. I will say this that section about Juan Fernandez was finally laid onto paper, um, no doubt months later. He'll have written his notes, he'll have got his ideas, but he did meet Robert Louis Stevenson's widow just a little bit later on in the trip. And I do wonder how much of um, Robert Louis Stevenson's and his wife's attitudes affected uh, Slocum's views on the people that he met in that he may have had view A as he actually engaged in the transaction but once he'd spoken to Fanny that is Robert Louis Stevenson's widow I think he maybe he got a different view on the world and we'll come back to that in the next chapter when he when he gets to Samoa so um, anyway the point is here that he um, has got a lot of appreciation for the people of Juan Fernando's it's a it's a paradise and um, one of the most enjoyable days that he has on he says on the entire trip was a day spent uh, looking for fruits quinces and, and little things about the island with the children and um, <laughs> explaining to them all the different names for things and uh, they are just amazed that uh, a cabre, which is a goat for them is a a a, a new word which slocum has to share with them which makes no sense to them whatever sounds completely strange to their ears and think it's just hilarious that this man would come all the way over the oceans to their island and then call a cabre a goat Um, it's a lovely delicate uh, moment in the book i am a little bit suspicious in all of this as we've said before that slocum is um a very he's as we've said he is one of the kind of influences of his day he no doubt had an editor for this book and um, he is very aware of what he could include in that to uh, interest the people that might well be listening to a reading or buying the book later on so I do understand that he's making tactical decisions as a kind of businessman slash writer slash adventurer here but it doesn't matter it's a lovely little moment and uh, a lovely view into the uh, the innocence of these children 120 years ago. After resting and getting new supplies on board the vessel in uh, Juan Fernandez, he then sets off on what is the longest single voyage uh, of his circumnavigation. The uh, initial point he's aiming for is the island of Nukihiva, that's about 42-43 days away, but as it is, he, spots snooker heaver and he's doing so well with his sailing and enjoying himself so much that he continues on and actually doesn't make landfall for 72 days so um for my experience i've done 44 days at sea is the longest i've ever done on my own at sea um i have to say Getting into the last sections of that, uh, I was absolutely, uh, as he says, kind of at one with what was going on. They always say that you can build a habit within 28 days. I think that's absolutely right. I think once you've done something for a continuous period of time, it just starts to become the new norm. And then you can start to get happy with it. If you keep breaking it up, you're never going to kind of get into the groove and, and get happy with what's going on. Now, this voyage, however, between um, Juan Fernandez and Nuku Hiva is a very interesting one Um, nothing much is really reported by slocum during this time but from slocum's point of view it's an opportunity to really kind of um sharpen his blade as a as a navigator so he talks a lot about the navigation that he does we can dive in a little bit deeper here um, and have a look at exactly what he's talking about he talks a lot about using the moon now Slocum's ideas about using the moon to do celestial navigation, remember it's 1895. Um, The idea of using the chronometer to um, uh, work out the difference between your local noon and noon at Greenwich. That's already been around at this point by about like 100 years. So it is not in any way something that's not available to him. He has his little tin clock, but the likelihood that that tin clock is keeping any kind of time is, you know, unlikely to say the best. Remember that it hasn't even got a glass in the front of it. So I think by the time it's at sea, um, it's not really such an important um, element to his navigation, which then of course, leaves the question of what the hell is he doing to go from point A to point B. It is very important to start this discussion by saying he accurately navigates between Juan Fernandez and a sighting within, you know, a couple of hours of the expected of Nuka Hiva. So we can say that whatever he is doing, it is working. Whether it is something that we would like to engage in now, whether it's safe or that, that it's completely ridiculous thing to try and bring to this conversation. It's 120 years ago. It's another time, another place. And Slocum himself is, you know, the, the advent of the, uh, the the chronometer to find longitude would have only happened maybe 40, 50 years before his birth. It was new technology and he would have been taught and had got used to using uh, the moon to find his, find his longitude. So how do they do it? I, I've got it up here on uh, Wikipedia because I am not aware of this methodology. It's not taught anymore, as you can imagine. The tables to do this kind of... Um, Calculation, I think, don't exist anymore. Um, Celestial navigation is part of the qualification that I did. Um, What he is doing is something totally other. So on Wikipedia, what they give us an idea is called lunar distances. okay, And that's a phrase that we do see in this chapter. He's talking about the fact that he has a lunar distance. Um, It was refined in the the 18th century. um, And it was something which uh, gave the navigator... Uh, uh, an option to correct their dead reckoning and, and be relatively accurate if, uh, if they knew what they were doing with this technique. The primary method of knowing where they were was just to know the heading of the vessel and the speed of the vessel. And then calculate the leeway of the vessel the sideways slip from the wind or from currents and try and get a a good estimate of where the vessel was and that's still a, a major function now of you know any sailor should be like basically have an idea of where they are you know whatever um whatever work you're doing in a boat wherever you're going you know you can still be marking on the chart your, your best guess alongside a GPS position and just start to get a feel for how accurate you can be. It is not essential to all the time, follow that little red line in front of the little black painted vessel on your uh, chart plotter. Um, so he's got an idea of his, um dead reckoning position he's got this pattern log that's out the back that's turning all the time but as he mentions you know there's so many things that can happen to a pattern turning log and get caught up with weed it can end up being pulled out of the water if the vessel goes too fast it can end up it so many things can happen to it and also, of course, it doesn't allow for leeway in any way, shape or form. So Slocum started to make himself uh, a, a position based primarily on lunar sights. He says also that he doesn't even look at the compass because he's got the stars at night, he's got the position of the moon and he's got the sun in the morning to to guide him along his way. And he's just trying to run down uh, a latitude. He's just trying to go exactly west. He's not trying to find his way through any kind of islands or anything. So he Uh, finally gets to a point where I'm guessing he thinks, you know what, (laughs) I better make a proper guess as to where I am. And he does his sights with his sextant and finds that he is exactly where he thought he was from his lunar tables, which is pretty incredible. Um, What's more incredible is that he identifies initially that his first uh, estimate and his first set of lunar sights are out by a couple of hundred miles and he does it again finds the same thing but has such confidence himself and i guess we'd have to say such skill levels that he decides to um look within the logarithmic tables to try and find an error which he duly does find and discovers that he's exactly where he thought he was so he cites nuka heaver um across the horizon I'm guessing that he's got himself a massive kind of uh, surge of energy because he's just done such a good job with the navigation. So he decides to continue on all the way to Appiah and to the islands of Samoa, giving him this 72 day stint at sea. But it would have been incredible, wouldn't it, to to have made all these observations and then uh, realize that uh, you're in exactly the right spot. And I think he takes a couple of pages here to just just sort of stretch out with people. Like I'm not just some old guy that's like bimbling my way around the world. Like I really know what I'm doing. And you can see there again, either the the hand of Slocum as a master writer or the hand of an editor who is, um, just reminding him just to keep that ma- that story going, keep the, um, the, the air of uh, of mastery and professionalism around himself so that he doesn't descend into just being a, a diarist as he takes this journey. So, he continues on, and he continues on to Appia, which is the home of the widow of Robert Louis Stevenson. Now, Robert Louis Stevenson, for me, is a name that, of course, I know it. I know the kind of books that he wrote. Um, I think of him as being a children's writer, primarily. And because of looking into all this stuff that we're doing, you know, as I look at Wikipedia to find out more details of things, I start to uh, look more and more into the kind of people that he's uh, meeting, that Slocum's meeting and the situations and, and I'm learning as I'm going along as well. And it seems that Robert Lewin Stevenson is someone who has, was at the time seemed to be a, a fantastic writer and then he slipped from, slipped from the, the fore somewhat and ended up primarily uh, in children's literature and kind of somewhat forgotten. And then he's had a bit of a revival in, in uh, the last 20 odd years. So uh, I was reading on Wikipedia this quote here from the American film critic Robert uh, Ebert. And he wrote in 1996, this is what he wrote. I was talking to a friend the other day who said he'd never met a child who liked reading Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. Neither have I, I said. And i'd never met a child who liked reading stevenson's kidnapped me neither i said my exposure to both books was via classics illustrated comic books but i did read the books later as an adult when i was no longer a kid and i enjoyed them enormously same goes for stevenson's dr jekyll and mr hyde the fact is stevenson is a splendid writer of stories for adults and he should be put on the same shelf with Joseph Conrad and Jack London, instead of in between Winnie the Pooh and Peter Pan. So there we go. So that is, I guess, why I thought of him that way. That's 1996, and if I look a little bit further up, he was actually pushed out of things like the Norton Anthology of English Literature and the Oxford Anthology of English Literature. As late as like 2000, he was still out. In fact, the uh, the Norton Anthology only had him in in two thousand and six, so this person who was uh, a bit of a a bit of a writing god at the time just basically spent a hundred years like in the wilderness um, with the books being uh, seen as for children. So I've got to say I oh, is this an admission? I don't think I have ever actually read Treasure Island. I think I've seen multiple variations of it different um films of it i seem to think there's like a 1960s really classic one i think i've seen another one though which was like sci-fi versions of it so um i think i'm gonna go back and and read this again and read treasure island and see like maybe that's the point with the. Stevenson's work is you're meant to kind of access it as a, a somewhat older person. The Wikipedia um, entry on him is very, very interesting. I'd say have a look at that if uh, if nothing else from this. What I wanted to do was try and understand why Slocum was so bowled over by meeting Stevenson's widow and try and fit that into the story. And what became very apparent very quickly is that Stevenson actually died in um, 1894. So he literally has only been dead for a couple of years. Slocum has been enjoying his works and to suddenly be On the island in this incredible place in Samoa, and able to meet those who knew his hero in a very intimate way, must have been very, very special for him. And again, not much really happens in these two chapters he finds an island paradise he does a great job of sailing from a to b and then he finds another island paradise but he finds heroes along the way and he interacts with the locals and he has an understanding of where they're at and he has a existential kind of concern for them and we have all these things going on and it really sort of sparked once i read this bit i realized that perhaps being around um fanny stevenson um kind of gave slocum an extra kick in the pants when it came to the way that he was writing things indeed they invite him to go and write his notes up at stevenson's desk imagine like you it's not like you're jumping on a plane to go and see your hero's you know house from outside on some kind of like hollywood tour this is the late 1800s he has sailed halfway around the world in an incredible feat of um of, of, of self-reliance and tenacity and all the rest of it and then he's actually able to go in and write up his uh, log and his notes for his book at the desk of one of his heroes it cannot have left him unaffected and uh, he talks a little bit about the fact that he is worried about the uh, oncoming of the white men and what they will do to these people and um It's very clear from reading the the part of the the book here that these are the views of Stevenson and of his wife and of those people who were there and understood and loved the Samoan culture and didn't want to see it be lost. Um, Stevenson had already come from Hawaii where he had seen people kind of march in and, and take away the land from the the hawaiians he didn't want to see that happen again in samoa and i think some element of that like is distilled down into slocum at this point and um we get this rare opportunity you know that's the other thing we should note here is that this is a first-hand account of someone going to samoa at this critical point in history just before Uh, A lot of their traditions and a lot of their traditional way of life got kind of not washed away but certainly submerged beneath the uh, all-encompassing culture that the missionaries and, and commerce brought to the islands. It is very sad now to realize that if you look at the writings of the conquistadors in South America they report that every man has a position within his culture and everybody is free and everybody has a good way of life and they're reporting on what we would now describe as being some kind of paradise here again. This is exactly what um, Slocum is experiencing in Juan Fernandez and exactly what he's uh, experiencing in, in Apia and in Samoa when he goes there. So, you know, can can humans exist without having to be at war with each other perpetually? Yes, they can. And they, they did until literally 100, 150 years ago. the The culture which we are fixated upon and I I watch a lot of films a lot of them have this undertone that basically left to their own devices humans will always engage in whatever's the worst possible behavior um, there is the hero is always that one that stands up to that temptation that humans will always engage in war and conflict and that there will be misery if the uh, underpinning natural um, fiber of what it is to be human is is not managed and yet when we discover what it was like for Columbus interacting with the uh, people that he met first when he cro- traveled across to the Americas, they were super kind and helped him out and had a, a culture based on um, deeply seated uh, principles of nature and uh, and, a, and a oneness with nature. We see that from the conquistadors in South America. We see that from uh, these trips now through the islands of South Pacific. So what exact areas are you talking about with that uh that idea that kind of that all humans are bad everyone must in the end descend into some kind of savagery um that is a european and a uh well it became north american because it was it was imposed on north america by europeans wherever europeans went they had that idea Now, I'd just like to go back a little bit. I realize I've clicked across a couple too many pages here. There's a lovely part in this, which um, if you've done this kind of voyaging, if you've been out there and on your boat, you'll absolutely get what he says here. He says, there was no denying that the comical side of the strange life appeared. I awoke sometimes to find the sun already shining into my cabin. I heard the water rushing by with only a thin plank between me and the depths. And I said, how is this? But it was all right. It was my ship on her course, sailing as no other ship had ever sailed before in the world. The rushing water along her side told me that she was sailing at full speed, and I knew that no human hand was at the helm. I knew that all was well with the hands forward and that there was no mutiny on board." Like, what an interesting moment. I've got to say, I gotta say, I I, love actually in that the detail that he says that he kind of woke in the cabin with the sun coming in at sea these days we're very much you know we're going to be three on three off four on four off or swedish system or whatever your watch keeping system is but there are moments where you oversleep certainly as a um, solo sailor you wake up at the wrong time the sun's streaming in when it shouldn't be and all that kind of stuff like i get that i understand that i love that he included that but he's lying there and he's just thinking like man this is really weird like he's in the middle of nowhere with no one on this boat um and the boat's just thrumming along quite happily, obviously probably been there all night doing its thing. No hand at the helm. This thing seems to just basically sail itself. I think it's that old um, pilot from the pinter from the first couple of chapters, still there enjoying himself. But uh, Slocum himself is is aware of what a special moment it is, and he's when he's talking about. Um, I knew that all was well with the hands forward. The hands is like the crew. The hands of the crew. Um, uh, but basically, as a captain of a vessel, you'd always be wondering what you know, what was the next trouble going to come out the forepeak, peak and, and what was going to go wrong, what mutiny would be about to be upon you. But there's none of that. He's just on his own. He's enjoying himself. He can hear from the sound of the water that the vessel's at full speed. Like he's completely omnipotent in a way. He's doing everything that he can do at that moment. The vessel's going where it wants to go. He's completely on top of the navigational situation. It's at full speed. He's got a full stomach. Nothing's wrong on the boat. Like how fantastical to be in that situation. And I think those moments are I think you know as we've said before I'm going off to go and do another circumnavigation soon I think I will take with me in a way that I never have done before some of the observations and some of the comments and and of course indeed the the edition of the book um, just to kind of remind myself of how connected what we all do on our boats is to, you know, what everyone has always done on their boats. Humans are kind of excited about going on the water. Not all humans, but those who are, really get something out of it. And we were just doing that one about the history of boats the other day, potentially 900,000 years humans have been going onto the water certainly 40,000 years we have evidence from 7,000 years ago humans have been engaging in this activity for a long time and it really strikes a chord for some of us in a way that you just can't get elsewhere and I think that's what kind of comes over Slocum in this moment that he's just um, he's just really enjoying the fact that he is uh, on his boat in the middle of nowhere like that's the most easy thing to understand uh, ever isn't it? He does give a piece of advice uh, in that section and he says that you must you must know the winds or be perpetually afraid and that's a very fair point you can't go to sea like permanently uh, crapping yourself about what may go wrong next he, he gives that advice that you do need to learn your craft before you set off he is able to relax in the way that he does because he is such a master in what in what he does. Now he talks here about the fact that um, he very nearly runs into a whale which is on the surface. So uh, I've, I've experienced this before myself. Um, when whales lie on the surface just kind of hanging out, um, they are what we call logging. And it's a perfectly construed term because it's just like that. It's just like there's a giant log in the middle of the ocean. I have struck a whale before um, at a, probably about 10 knots. Um, it, it, i got to say it left me feeling very very guilty afterwards but when you start to apply a little bit of thought to it you realize that we weren't really going that fast Uh, we hit it by basically kind of beaching the bow of the boat up onto it and there was no there was no particular impact but you can imagine that would have been a big shock for the whale who was just lying there asleep and then suddenly kind of gets mounted by something else um Sokum specifically uh, says in this that he thinks the whale was frightened and I and I, I laughed when I read this because I know exactly what it means What happens is that the whale suddenly getting a shock from you bearing down on it. I've, I've maybe dodged whales like three or four times at high speed in heavy seas you're coming off a wave um, Doing 15 20 knots and at the bottom of the wave you realize there's a whale at the bottom of the wave and you have to um, Dodge around it or whatever, but uh, more often than not they will uh Within you know two or three boat lengths, they suddenly become aware that you're there, and then they move very very fast. So, from the whale's point of view, if it is struck by the boat and the whale does nothing, it's very bad for the whale. Certainly, some of the higher speed vessels that are out there, um, there there is definitely evidence on the west coast of the U.S. that these whales are being struck by vessels, um, whether they're sailing boats or motor driven boats. We don't know, and it's causing a lot of damage to the whales. So, um, there there is that. But what primarily happens is that they they are aware just moments before and if they get their nose down and they get their fluke in the air then the tables shift very quickly the other way and actually could be a massive problem for the vessel if you have a whale's fluke coming down on the side of your vessel as it tries to get itself away The experiences I've had, we have neither interacted with the whale, that one time where we kind of beached on one in the middle of the Atlantic aside, Um, we've not interacted with the whale, the whale hasn't hit us, but what happens is the sea goes brown, (laughs) like brown brown, and that's because this enormous, enormous, enormous beast suddenly, (laughs) well it craps itself, it's frightened as Slocum says, and the sea goes brown around it and that's the little joke that he is uh, is making in there and uh, and a very keenly made point it is too another little uh, detail that's like that is he says that sailors take things by and large and by and large is a sailing term which you probably know this it means uh, to sail by the wind and to sail large means to sail basically on a on a on a broad reach so it's the best possible angle for the wind. Um, it's super easy to to make your way along. Obviously, when you've got uh, a vessel travelling before a broad reach in the true sense of the word, it's a it's a tr- it's a, a broad reach for the true wind. The wind will come slightly forward in anything other than um, harsh conditions, and then the wind will be on the side of the boat, which is otherwise known as a soldier's wind. Because it's so easy to steer by; even the soldiers on the crew could could steer the boat. So. He also, uh, this is giving me a little idea, he's uh, eating flying fish. And he says that uh, the canned meat kind of went wanting that uh, he never had to open it. Um, I've never eaten flying fish. I'm told that they are very similar to mackerel. They're very oily fish as a lot of these um, pelagic fish are. Um, I tell you this, they're smelly little buggers. My experience of them is that indeed, as he says, they flick out the water. Once you get into warmer climes, they flick out of the water and uh, will hit the sails of the vessel and then hit the deck i'm a real animal lover i've been watching too much disney basically i I do feel compelled to go up on deck and and flick them off the boat when i hear them clattering around the deck they sound so desperate and they're trying so hard to get away i feel like i kind of have to help them but there there is a couple of there's, there's a couple of bits in sense in there as well the bit of sense that's in there is the fact that i um one of my sailing mentors um, Sandy Marr he told me a uh, situation that occurred for him he was um, walking down the, the side decks of his catamaran in the middle of the ocean his uh, wife Eleanor who was um, sleeping below was his the only other person that was on board and as he's walking down the side deck barefoot he slipped on the slime from a flying fish and uh, the legs came right out from underneath him and within an instant he was under the guard wires and it's only the fact that the uh, lower guard wire kind of came up under his armpits that he stopped himself from going going over the side of the boat. So I've always been aware since then that if flying fish are on the deck, then I want to go to where they are and I want to get them off the vessel as quickly as I can. And then I wanna get rid of whatever they have left because they are very slimy, like crazy slimy. So um, on the open 60s and the race boat, it's not such of an issue because I tend to have a very aggressive grit on the deck of the boat. So I've always got maximum grip on my boots at, at any time. but you know it's far beyond what you'd have on a normal boat because otherwise you'd be you'd be tearing your, tearing the towels you're lying on tearing your bathing costume you'd be you know scuffing your knees if you ever fell over so on a normal boat it's even more priority those, those things have to go over the side of the boat um or and clean the boat down if you can uh, one tip that i'll give you in the middle of reading the slocum stuff is that the best way to get rid of what's on your hands afterwards is to find a piece of rope Uh, on the deck just coiled up with everything else and just drag your hands down that rope it doesn't seem to stay in the rope for very long because the rope's in the sun and it dries out then it gets washed and it's gone but you just get a rope get a different rope each time drag your hands down it all the slime will be gone and your hands won't smell that bad then it's very easy to get rid of it but um that slime they leave is super dangerous but slocum in this is giving me another idea that actually maybe go and capture them and uh and and eat them so i'm guessing that they're quite like mackerel i'm not uh, i don't really mind mackerel little peppered dried mackerel it's not gonna be like that is it it's just gonna be cutting up a <laughs> like fish and eating it in the middle of nowhere well i'll report back when i've done it and we'll know if you know we, we've already decided he's a bit of a genius we'll we'll know by the end of this whether he's a, a culinary genius as well so uh, to get back on track with where we were he arrives in samoa and he's very taken by Missus stevenson and um and, uh, I didn't read it when I, I didn't understand it when I very first read it, but literally her husband's been gone by only like a year and a half, two years. So when she says things like, um, we had, uh, our tastes were similar as she takes this little adventure with Slocum rowing out to his boat. You can imagine for a second that, um. It was just a little moment to be back with someone that was the same kind of adventurer as her husband and of course she writes that lovely um, monograph in the the front of the the, the books that she gives to him saying indeed that she feels her husband would have um, loved for him to have the books because he was cut from the same cloth so Yeah, that brings us up now to a bit which I wasn't sure where I was going to bring this up in the story of Slocum. We're about an hour and 20 in here now, so I'm going to give this 10 minutes and um, I'm going to kind of address head-on an issue which um is definitely part of the slocum story we talked um last time about the fact that you know was he racist was he not racist i I don't believe he was racist i think he was caught up within the 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 time and the people and the situation he was in and his um language ends up sounding a little bit harsh certainly the language that he's used in these two um uh, chapters couldn't have been more uh deferential and more polite towards the people that he met so I think we're I think we're good on that one but there is the fact that when Slocum came back from his uh, voyage um, uh, a year after this point that we're talking about here he was accused of and uh, in fact uh, convicted for sexual abuse and the situation that uh, happened is is worth consideration because it comes up when you're talking about Slocum and it's good to know the situation and to make a decision about it and uh, and and therefore to not allow your um, understanding of slocum to be uh, colored in 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 one way or another whether that be by facts or by fiction so let's have a see what exactly happened here the year is uh, 1906 so we're now a decade after slocum has returned from his round the world voyage he's done a lot of work publishing the book it's gone down very very well um he's been doing tours all over the place and he has up until that point been the the kind of darling of the uh, the rich and powerful in america it's what he's done has been recognized as singular and uh, he has been honored for it um he he then comes into riverton in new jersey and during the time that the boats alongside as was very normal people are coming and looking around the boat and are uh, buying books and all that kind of stuff off him. Um, at this point, a 12 year old girl visits the spray with a friend and then told her father she had in the words of a newspaper, and I quote, suffered indignities there. The girl's father told the authorities and Slocum was charged with rape. Now you get that version of the story, thrown around quite a lot and as i was looking into this i actually came across an article by a local magazine here in nova scotia called saltscapes which actually i I read quite often and i quite like they've got an article from a few years back called a sailor's heart and that is it that's what they give and there's definitely in there some of the facts of what happened but it does go quite a lot further What we need to know about Slocum at this point is that he had been starting to suffer from what is quite likely to be either um, just an eccentricity of of who he was uh, returning to this kind of um, bumbling baggy pants kind of fix it in the field type guy, which is who he is and who we love at the beginning. He'd become quite forgetful. His uh, temper had started to get a little bit uh, out of sorts, which again is maybe an indicator of uh, early onset of dementia. He wanted to go back to sea. He was regularly leaving and going down to the Caribbean and coming back up. The boat was said to be in a very dirty condition and and, and a bit of a mess. And I think what we've got is we've got the beginnings of someone who's had a very hard life. He's in his 60s now and he's getting forgetful and he's getting to that kind of, what we'd like to call an old man kind of uh, phase. Now, let's not get too light here until we've worked out what's going on. Obviously somebody, this young girl has been, uh, uh, attacked or has been, uh, affronted in some way. And we're trying to understand what happened and, and what happens next in the legal, um, proceedings gives us a clear idea of what's going on. A doctor was called who examined the girl and found no evidence that she had been physically harmed. Um, immediately as soon as this happens the father starts kind of walking back the accusation he wrote a letter describing the news coverage um, that was calling an assault as uh, quote appearing to misstate the facts so we've got a young woman who is very very upset we've got an old sailor who is gruff and forgetful and uh his boat's a bit of a mess and he's kind of like the slightly old let's say it slightly kind of demented old guy and, but you know, the girl's, uh, uh, um, emotional condition and her, and her fright and her, uh, uh, her situation, her mental situation is not to be taken lightly. Something's definitely happened. Um, Slocum spent 42 days in jail, uh, after which there was a hearing uh, in front of the judge and the charge was reduced to indecent assault. And then the judge told him uh, that upon the request of the family, I can deal leniently with you. Uh, Slocum, for his own part, said he had no memory of the incident and that if anything had happened, it must have been during some kind of, and I quote, uh, mental lapse. Uh, One of the details which is important, which actually came from um, Theodore Roosevelt, is that uh, while sailing on board the vessel, he noticed that Slocum... um, that he had his fly unbunned for most of the trip which he thought was wildly uh, comical but he started to get an idea that perhaps we've got someone here whose mental situation is not all that it could have been and it could have been that he's uh got up and and moved uh and and uh he's not got his pants on or he's not got his pants done up properly um but certainly something has happened where she has not been physically harmed not been physically um, messed about with but she has definitely experienced something which has um, uh, upset her very very badly so i think that what we have to take from it as there was Basically, the, the charge was reduced to the m- most minimal it could be. Even the family said deal with him leniently. The father said that they had been misquoted. Um, the doctor said that she had not been interacted with. Now, it's a very male culture at that time. I do understand that. And Slocum was definitely a celebrity. So you could say that there was a bit of kind of like, you know, how can we get him out of this situation? But they, they still charged him. with And it's not like they swept it under the carpet. But... Certainly, he was told uh, to leave Riverton and never come back again. Um, But he kind of just went back to what he was doing and nothing was ever heard of it ever again later on in history or anything else. So, I don't know what to make of that. I I didn't like it when I found this out about uh, Slocum's history. Um, But I am willing to understand that within the sphere of information we've been given here, that it's quite likely that whatever happened, he didn't know about it um or, or it was just some kind of mental lapse his fly was unbuttoned, his trousers weren't pulled up or uh, who, who knows what the situation was but somebody was definitely upset by it um, but very quickly those around her started to kind of walk back the accusation and it, it all kind of boiled down to nothing. But we only have to go forward another couple of years and that's actually when we get to the point where Slocum departs and not uh, to reveal too many small, uh, spoilers here, but um, he does indeed disappear and I can imagine that if he has got this thing hanging over him and it's become something that is, uh, uh, you know, a problem in his life, uh, his his response to that might well be to just depart and kind of never come back again. Um, I do see a lot of things about Slocum which are um, written incorrectly. You know, if you read the book as we have been doing, he, um, he has these moments alone talking to the moon and giving orders to to crew that aren't there and things for people who are non-sailors and not aware of this world to then suddenly say oh he was terribly lonely and he's losing his mind at sea because he's talking to the moon and he's talking to the uh, the crew that aren't there i think you miss entirely the romanticism of what's going on in the situation I, I think we've dug into that enough as we've been going along here to understand that um slocum also was uh had had uh, le- charges levied against him in his sailing career for um, for harshness now what's interesting is that some of the quotes that i saw from people at the time was that slocum's crime was actually uh, not holding back the mates on the vessel when you're on board a commercial vessel the mate runs the boat and the captain runs the mate. And that is the hierarchy. The captain does all the paperwork. He ultimately has the, or these days, of course, he or she has the final uh, say on anything that happens on board the vessel. But if you go back 150 years, um, the punishments that were handled out by these uh, these young mates, as they often were, I remember everybody seemed to be doing everything a lot earlier, there are only some of them in their early twenties they were often responsible for some very harsh treatment of the people he was also charged with uh, having a man held in irons for like 54 days or something but again the details seemed to be lost from the fact that that person had forged all of his papers to get on board the vessel and then had attempted to um, start a mutiny on board the vessel and then had been uh, trying to escape from the original uh, imprisonment that they'd given him on board the vessel in the brig. So the fact that he was in irons for 50 odd days, um, there was a lot of these charges were brought and then dropped and then nothing really ever came of them. And in the entire time that he was at sea, he was never... um, he was never formally charged with anything serious against his crew. A lot of people were. You know, the, the fact that the captain's word at sea is law can lead to some people using that as an opportunity to, to engage in, you know, pretty sadistic kind of way of life. Slocum doesn't seem to be that. I say his contemporaries said of him that his biggest crime was to not rein in. The, the mates and the the uh, treacherous uh, actions that they were taking against the members of the crew. So he doesn't really have a history of it. If you understand the sea and if you understand the period that he lived in and the kind of things that he was doing, um, he, he wasn't known as being some awful master. A couple of things came up, a couple of things blew out without any charges being laid. You know, it is what it is. This was a very different time in the world and Slocum was trying to navigate uh, that social seen with all the complications that it brought as well as of course trying to navigate his vessel. The the reason that I brought this up is because um in the end of chapter uh, 12 here we are enjoying him interacting with the the young women that are uh, come to his vessel in uh, in Samoa as he as he reaches the islands of Samoa and then again when he's at the chief's banquet and uh Taloa, uh, who is the the kind of queen of the May, the 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 ceremonial princess for the night, um, she's uh, there. There's the girls that come out from the uh, the school to the boat. There's, there's lots of interactions he has with young uh, women, and uh, and let's not forget he had his own kids. You know he had uh, a, a family and everything at home. Like it's not like he was some uh, derelict and some uh, some some kind of ostracized member of the human race when i was reading this what struck me very much is this phrase he says um uh, as for taloa a sort of queen of the may and the other tapo girls well it is wise to learn as soon as possible the manners and customs of these hospitable people and meanwhile not to mistake for over familiarity that which is intended as honor to a guest so Very clearly there, he's aware of the fact that within this social system that's going on here now, um, the chief is saying to to Talawa, go and sit closer to him. And um, all these girls are just wearing these lava lava um, dresses as they swim on off his boat, what have you. But there's never anything in any of it which gives any indicator that anybody there was um, pissed off with him or had an issue with the way he was interacting with someone. Um, And for him to actually point out the fact that he didn't want to take advantage in this situation, it seems very odd to then have that person be actively trying to engage in something um, so heinous uh, only only 10 years later. And so um, in the end, you got to kind of plant your flag in the ground. I'm going to say that I think that um, Slocum was starting to get into either just a level of eccentricity or, or, or dementia, whatever you want to call it, but he was getting to a point where he was not on top of his shit anymore uh 10 years after this and um it's possible that when that uh, young girl and her friend came on board the vessel um he made a faux pas in that he he rose from his bed or his bunk or whatever came down into the cabin or didn't know they were there and he's either didn't have his pants on or he didn't have his button uh, done up and she uh took that as uh, you know, was very frightened by it and upset by it but ultimately it was a faux pas and not anything um, untoward. So when I read these uh, magazines, even local magazines here in Nova Scotia, a place which hardly seems to give this guy even the lighting of a candle, I'm sad that the researchers don't do more to find out exactly what was going on there. And you could say something like in his later years, he was involved in an indiscretion, which even the family felt was not serious later on. He was given the most menial uh, or most lenient uh, uh, judgment possible and just basically told never to come back to the town is a fairer. Description of what happened than just uh, saying that uh, I, I read this in this um Saltscapes thing um, And they say like, you know, he had a, a, a darker side to him or something and that um, uh, He in May 1906 less than a decade after his famous voyage Slocum was arrested and charged with raping a 12 year old girl He spent 42 days in jail before accepting a lesser charge of indecent assault the alleged incident it says in bracket was eventually downgraded to a great indiscretion it's not that slocum did any of that it's that the wheels of justice turned and the situation was more understood and he had indeed made a great indiscretion but there wasn't anything more to it than that so so we don't need to feel too guilty when we are listening to him talking about the island girls if you knew more about his story i think we can understand what happened there and um Uh, As he comes to the end of this uh, section, uh, he to my mind it does not seem to really be that interested in wanting to leave Samoa. He seems to have uh, learnt very quickly that what they've got going on there is uh, is an excellent way of living one's life. And uh, certainly if you take the time to read the Wikipedia page and read more about the writings of Robert Louis Stevenson, you'll find more than little hint of some of his philosophy in what um, Slocum has written here. This will lead us then on to chapter 13, and I've got to tell you the number of pages ahead is getting a lot uh, thinner than the pages behind. We're on page 164 of how many? Flip to the back, 290 odd pages, 294 pages. So we're we're getting up there. Um, And just to remind you, the, the edition that we're reading from here is a first edition of this book. Um, This is actually uh, contemporary. It's a 1900 edition. That's when it first came out. Um, And so we are reading it right from the, uh, you know, as close as you can get to the hand of the author. Um, And we are sitting here, as always, reading in Nova Scotia where Slocum was born. So um, next episode, we're gonna be seeing him leave Samoa and continue on his voyage across the Pacific. Good, well, I hope you enjoyed that. I'll speak to you in the next one. Cheers.